I do a lot of reading. Every day there's a bombardment of thoughts, articles, books, web pages to absorb, and I try to read the Bible daily as well. But occasionally an article will stand out, and I'll go back to it a few times. And a recent example was titled, DeSantis Goes to War, by Thomas Klingenstein. I did some digging to find that author, and I, we share some common friends, so I researched further, found a really smart guy in Thomas who loves America and understands the fight that we're in. Tom is the chairman of the Claremont Institute, and I love the Claremont Institute. I've known um, Brian Kennedy and before him Larry Arne, both good friends. Tom's a philanthropist, he's a public speaker, he's a writer, he's a playwright. He believes that we're in a cold civil war and we have an enemy. Uh, he's called it at times the woke communists and they're winning in large measure because Republican and conservative leaders have yet to engage. His essays, speeches, and plays all encourage Republicans to do, think, talk, and act as if we're in a war. Among his essays are Preserving the American Way of Life, Fighting the Mob, Winning the Cold Civil War, Men in the Future of America, and many others. His works have been published at the Claremont Review of Books, Newsweek, American Mind, American Greatness, Real Clear Politics. His speeches, such as A Man Versus a Movement and Trump's Virtues, have been viewed by millions of fellow Americans. I reached out to him to invite him to join us, because we're in the economic war room. He says we're in a war, and he came. Welcome, Tom. It's good to have you in the economic war room. Well, thank you very much. Pleased to be here. You know, you're a pretty eclectic guy, investments, author, speaker, playwright, but you're outspoken on one subject that caught my attention. Uh, numerous articles and speeches where you talked about wokeism and the threat that it is and how we're in, in a war in America over that, a new civil war. Can you describe it? Yeah, you know, I call it, you know, I change names, as I told you before, frequently. But w we are in a war against something I call the woke regime. And re regime is an important word because it implies a way of life the American way of life and the woke way of life. And they're 100% or totally incompatible. They're utterly irreconcilable. So in our understanding of justice in America, it's about free people pursuing happiness. It's very simple. In the woke uh, understanding of justice, it's about the state imposing quotas by groups, blacks, Latinos, gays, whatever it is. Now, those can't go together. I mean, you can have admissions to colleges, to flight schools, to medical schools based on merit, or you can do it by quotas. You can't do both. So one way I frame this debate is the merit regime versus the group quota machine. You know, in politics, it's often the case that people need a binary choice, pro-choice, pro-life, pro-social, pro-capitalism. So I think it's important for leaders to frame it. I suggest to them, I just wrote uh, a new piece without digressing too much, but Jim Banks, a very impressive congressman from Indiana, now running for Senate, he just said, uh, set up an anti-woke caucus, which I think is a big deal because, you know, he's elevating this issue uh, to importance. So 
maybe I'll stop. Lost my train of thought, yeah. so. Well, well, that comparison, you talk about the, the woke, but another way to frame it is the recognizing the value of the individual versus a forced recognition of a group. And so it doesn't matter which class you're in. You can be gay, you can be straight, you can be black, you can be white, it doesn't matter. In the first system, you recognize the individual, the talent, the opportunity, and, and you don't have a quota because it all happens at the individual level based on merit. The other is regardless of your merit, your skin color determines your future. And you know, I grew up thinking that was evil and wrong to judge people solely based on their skin color, but apparently the new woke does that. Yeah, no, your point is right. It says all men are created equal. It doesn't say all groups are created equal. And we know that groups, men versus women, various subcultures, they have different talents, different interests, right? And so if you let individuals be free, what you're going to find is group differences in various areas of human life. The most obvious is women and men. You know, women value different things. And frankly, they're better at different things, despite what the woke people tell us. And so, you know, they're less likely to be in the top uh, echelons, not because they're not capable, but those are 60 hour a week jobs and raising kids, 16 hour a week jobs, and you just can't do both. But the point is, if you let individuals pursue happiness, you're going to end up with an inequality of results. And the only way, and this seems to me very important, the only way you can in create equality of result is by force and ultimately by tyranny. And you know that's what's so dangerous. And I think our political leaders, if you said, haven't, but really ought to impress upon us that this is a challenge like communism, like Nazism before it. Yeah, no, there's no question. And so you can only force equality uh, by force, tyranny, and you also then get suboptimal outcomes. If you force equality, you don't get the optimal outcome. And so everybody loses, but we're all losing equally. And that, that's a really terrible thing. I agree. I mean, you hate to say it, but you, you don't want the people who fly your planes to have been chosen on anything other than merit. You don't want your surgeon, right? There are all kinds of things, it seems to me, where it's critical that you have the best. I don't want my cab driver because they have to have a quota. I want actually a decent driver. I, I don't want any service provided by the, by the median or worse, which is what uh, equality requires. Yeah, no, no, I, you know, and, and I think people have to understand it and more than understand it, talk about it. Well, we're we going don't... We're gonna talk about it uh, in, in the next segment, not just about the problem, which is a very serious one, but we're also gonna talk about some of the solutions. How do we get on that war footing and how do we make a difference? This is an economic war room. We believe in fighting using economics, among other things. So take a break and we'll be right back. 
Tom, you've described that we're in a cold civil war, and, and I believe that. We view it from the economic perspective, so it's an economic war, but even what you're sharing, this idea of mandating quotas, that pops up in the investing realm. For example, in ESG, the G, the governance, is you have to have a quota system on the board of directors, a certain number of women, a certain number of minorities, a certain number of LGBTQ. Um, that seems to run contrary to, to what is optimal for corporations in the economy of America. Can you comment on that? Yes. Um, you know, in, in, in this case, I'm very libertarian. Look, the job of a corporation is to make money, period. If we as a society want to limit or regulate them in some respect, justifiable in some cases. But at the end of the day, you're going to get the best products, the best service, the fairest, if you simply let um, corporations focus on profits and not, for example, what you know they call it stakeholders. When I, you know, I started in the investment business in the late 70s, I ran a bank in the early 80s, and they kept telling me, you know, I had to think about stakeholders, right? No, I think the best way to deal with spake, uh, stakeholders, the best way to make money for your investors is to focus on profits and let them give the money away, right? If they want to give the money away, great. But they didn't invest in my bank for me to give it away. You know, I would, I would take that even further. I think the profit motive is the best way to help the stakeholders. For example, so who are the stakeholders of a restaurant? The customers, the employees, the dishwashers, the management, the, the society at large. If you shortchange any of those groups, your restaurant's gonna fail. If you treat your employees poorly, they'll leave, go work for somewhere else. If you don't provide a good food at a fair price, your customers will leave, they'll go somewhere else. If you pollute the streets, they'll come in and the health department will shut you down. So I think if, by being driven to profit, you actually look at all the stakeholders and have to take them all into account. What do you thought? It de I, I mean, I agree. It depends where you start. Uh, I would say I start with I want to make as much money as I can within the rules, and I recognize that that will benefit all my stakeholders. That's a little different than starting with I want to help my waiters, right? It, I think it gets you to a little bit different point. If you focus on profits, the consequences, as you just said, will be better for all stakeholders. Right, because if, if you pay $100,000 a month in salary to a dishwasher, taking it to an absolute extreme, you're out of business and dishwasher is unemployed. You have, to, you have to let the free market make these decisions wherever possible, and the profit motive ensures that the free market makes the right decisions. Right, I mean, if you underpay your dishwasher in the restaurant across the street, it's gonna entice that dishwasher, right? You know, people think that businesses, you know, are bad and they control wages. Businesses have very little ability to control wages in a competitive market, right? Because if you underpay, there's somebody else that's willing to give somebody a fair return. Yeah. So one of the comments you made is this is a war over the American way of life. 
And I think it's waged not just rhetorically, but in reality. We see canceled bank accounts. We see companies, uh, you know, social media companies that drop people from social media, even though they're very, very popular, you know, didn't, didn't really violate terms of service and everything, all to impose this woke agenda. And I, it's impacting us economically. Can you comment on that? What people have to understand is that's an element of a totalitarian regime. What our leaders, our leaders ought to bone up on totalitarian regimes and then draw parallels between the generic totalitarian regime and our totalitarian, or at least soft totalitarian regimes. And central to a totalitarian regime is to shut up, or not just it's to shut up, but make sure people don't hear arguments that challenge the lies of the regime. There's two things a regime has to do, a lie, a big lie. In our case, America is systemically racist. That's the most important thing the woke revolutionaries do, because if they can convince us that we are systemically racist, that is to say evil, then we're going to be willing to trade in our way of life to theirs. After all, who wants to sustain and support a regime that's systemically evil? So number one, a big lie. Number two, shut up people who challenge the lies. That's the center, and that's what our elected officials and have to talk about. One, one other point, you know, we don't have a leader of the anti-woke movement. We, uh, you know, I'm trying to think in past generations, you had somebody like Bill Bennett, um, head of a movement, Pat Buchanan, um, but we don't have anybody that your audience associates with anti-wokeism. This is why this new anti-woke caucus is so encouraging. And I'm hoping that Jim Banks, who, as I said, is the uh, motivational force behind it will actually play that role. We need somebody. It's not just intellectuals like myself. It's politicians and, you know, people like Tucker Carlson. He's great at it, but he's not going to lead a movement. We need a movement leader. No, there's no question. You're right on that. I look over your shoulder and I see a, a picture of Abraham Lincoln. And I realize that they're trying to cancel Abraham Lincoln, even though he stood against racism, just like they're trying to cancel Winston Churchill. I, I heard him called a Nazi recently. I'm like, how do you call Churchill a Nazi? He was the most anti-Nazi person uh, of his era. Uh, but we, we need to pull together an army and we need leaders and generals for that army because we're in a war. Now we're gonna take another break. When we come back from this break though, let's talk solutions because you've laid out some very good thought patterns on how we can solve this problem, how we can fight and push back against wokeness and actually restore the American way of life. Let's take a break and we'll be back. We've been talking with Tom Klingenstein, who's a brilliant man. He's uh, you know, so accomplished investing, playwright, uh, he, he's got his own website and blog, and he's fighting the war. He's trying to intellectually uh, uh, prepare us to fight a war. I'm going to quote from him. He says, winning a war requires two fundamental understandings. First, you must understand that you are, in fact, in a war. 
Now, we're in the economic war room. We tell you every week we're in a war. And, and the war could be with the Chinese, Chinese communists and their ideology, or it could be with the woke ideology that, that Tom describes. But second, he says, second, you must understand your enemy, what it wants, and how it goes about getting what it wants. So he's just described the purpose of the economic war room. That's why we exist. Now, the first half is that. The second half of our purpose is to develop strategies to win the war. And these include thought strategies, worldview, rhetoric, and investment strategies. So the big question I want to ask you, how can we win? How do we win this big war? Well, first, I think it's rhetoric. A friend of mine wrote recently that DeSantis is all action and no talk. All action, no talk. And his point was that, yes, it's important to do things, but it's also important to explain and justify things. Abraham Lincoln won the Civil War as much by his rhetoric, as much by his explaining to the American people why it was so important to fight this war as he did uh, through his actions. So the first thing... I and I just wrote an essay on this, an advice to this anti-woke caucus, which is rhetoric first. And I know that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but as the words you quoted suggest, you better know you're in a war and you better be able to explain it. We're in an economic war, that's definitely true, but I I think of it a little more comprehensively. It's a cultural war of which economics is very important, or to say it another way, it's a war about the American way of life. And obviously capitalism, the economy is a very important. So rhetoric is very important. Uh, as you said, quoting me, that not only do you have to explain that we're in a war, you have to explain the enemy. What is the enemy? How does it work? In a traditional totalitarian regime, the enemy is the state. And the state controls all aspects of public and private life. Not true here. Ours is kind of a loose confederation, business, media, entertainment foundations, uh, Democratic Party, and so on. There's no overarching organization. There's a kind of informal, uh, mostly informal, sort of collaboration, which we saw in the riots, for example. So explain what it is, and then how it goes about doing what it wants to do. Now, what it wants to do, as I've said, is group uh, equality of group results. That's its goal. The most important thing that it does to achieve that, I've already said, but it's important to say it over and over again, they have to convince us that we're racist and that there is a white supremacist hiding behind every tree. Again, if they can convince us of that, we will hand them our way of life. And so one of the things our leaders have to do is to defend themselves against this charge. We're not racist. Now, there's no way in the world that we're going to convince the other side, and nobody should try. Uh, they should just dismiss it. But I tell you what they can do is stiffen the spines of those on the right. 
The race card works because those on the right most agree with it to a point. They have white guilt and it makes it very difficult to fight back. And they've got to get over this white guilt stuff, right? And they've got to convince the American people that the goal is not to solve the race problem. The goal is to make sure the race problem doesn't destroy America. So, you know, a lot of it, some of it is courage. Some of it is they don't know what to say. Some of it is lack of organization. You have to say this with a whole bunch of people, not, you know, one person. But now we get back to leader. You need a leader. Nothing can replace the value of a leader. And so far, though, you know, Governor DeSantis has shown some interest, in fact, in being the anti-woke leader, but he's not there yet, and nobody else is either. Well, first, you, we have to know who our enemy is, then we have to have our leaders. I get, get all that. But when, you, when you're talking about the, the, this group, I don't think they're all just ideologues who, who want to see. I think there are grifters in that group. I think that there are elitists in that group who want to grab, use this as a power grab. And then I, I think there are the true believers that somehow they think the system will be better, which of course it won't. Uh, but I think that this is a mishmash of a bunch of people all headed the same direction and bum-rushing America that direction from the white guilt or the sexual guilt or the, all the other guilts that we have. No, I think that's absolutely true. In any revolutionary movement, there are only a handful or relatively small percent who are revolutionaries, right? The woke revolutionaries. They aren't the typical Democrat or maybe the typical CEO. Those are collaborators. Those are people who go along. And in any revolutionary moment, uh, movement, you have the ideologues, but mostly you have the people who go along because it seems like this ideology seems like, you know, that's what smart people know and do. I tell you one other thing in terms of doing, and we don't have enough time to discuss it. Our side has to fix K through 12 education. And I think there are ways to do it. I think DeSantis is um, leading the way. There's a lot more we can do. But if we don't fix K through 12, if we allow the other side to continue to brainwash the next generation of citizens, we're dead. Well, I agree with you 100%. Uh, I appreciate you taking time with us in the economic war. We're fighting this war, like you said. It, it, the economic war is a part of that, but it's a part we aren't fighting back with yet. And that's what we're doing here in the economic war room, helping people uh, alter their economic activity to include investing in things that support the American way of life, liberty, security, and values, as opposed to destroying the American way. So thank you very much for joining us here in the economic war room. Well, I'm very pleased to do it. Thank you. We hope you'll come back. In fact, we, we're training uh, financial advisors at the National Security Investment Consultant Institute at Liberty University in Virginia. It's an online course, and we'd love to have you come in and meet with some of our advisors, either virtually or in person, at, at our Liberty Hawk Ranch. You're, you're a great man, a great American. We appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. All right, we're going to summarize all of this. Our conversation uh, with Tom Klingenstein and uh, his brilliant opinions and thoughts in our free economic battle plan that you can find at economicwarroom.com. 
Remember, what we see as a marketplace, our enemies view as a battle space. This is Kevin Freeman from the Economic War Room. Thank <laughs> you.